If you want to listen to this episode or any of our episodes ad-free, you can do that now. Head on over to Patreon. Click on the ad-free level. You get all of our bonus shows that you've been hearing so much about. Plus, every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you can listen to this episode or any of our other episodes at the same time, ad-free, over on Patreon. everyone this is david welcome back behind the velvet rope let's just get right into it today because we are joined by the one the only mr brian dunkelman that's my favorite intro of all time thank you for having me i mean listen this is behind the velvet rope brian we have to you know welcome you appropriately it's appreciated what is going on with you today and where are you in the world? I assume Los Angeles, but I'm just making that up possibly. Beautiful downtown Glendale, my friend. How is that going today? It's not bad. I haven't gone out in the yard yet. It's a little overcast, which is unusual. So it's cooling down a little bit. Well, it is overcast here as well. Where are you? Uh, well, I am. I live in New York City, but I'm out at the beach this week, so I'm kind of cheating. But, you know, everyone's like, what a great vacation. I'm like, yeah, there's there's no vacation here. I'm working every day. So thank you very much. I we have so much to get into. I want to talk about the new documentary, Dunkelman. I want to talk all about your comedy. But obviously, I like to start at the beginning here behind the velvet robe. So you first came into the world's purview, you know, and went with hosting American Idol. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're forgetting two guys, a girl on a pizza place. Well, we were going to get to that in a second because I, that was, first of all, that was a great show. Let let me just tell you, you know what? There's so many shows that last for so short a period of time that are great, right? What did you love best about that show since you brought it up now? Well, that was my first acting gig, first of all. And then uh, <clears throat> uh, Nathan Fillion, who I became friends with, he was uh, he had a, a recurring role on that. And of course, uh, Ryan Reynolds was just really, really cool to me. And to see him just blow up, I mean, he's Deadpool, for God's sake. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I did mm-hmm. three, I think I did three episodes. They just kept bringing me back as like different little, you know, four, four or five liners. What was Ryan Reynolds back then before like this ultra super fame that we now have? So nice. Just so cool. And he would be, he would say to me, like, I don't know why they're wasting all this talent on four lines. Like he was really genuinely very nice to me. So he's wow. always been I had someone else on cause he was, I, she was on gossip girl. She had a smaller part and she would tell me how he would come to the set when he was started dating Blake Lively. And she was like, he's literally probably the nicest guy in all of Hollywood. So yeah, he's really, really cool. Uh, unbelievable. That was such a good show. Well, that was my point. You know, you, wanted to be an actor a comedian like that was kind of your goal not a host correct I did uh I started doing stand-up when I was 20 years old and uh you know I was going to college I was uh I like to say I was a finance major but I didn't want any part of that disgusting backstabbing cutthroat world so I got in showbiz um but that's when I started I moved to Colorado I lived there for a year and then I moved to LA um on my 25th birthday I I lived I moved to Los Angeles 
And then just uh, started doing stand-up, got the Aspen Comedy Festival, the U.S. Uh, US uh, Comedy Arts Festival for HBO, and um, just got a ton of auditions out, out of that. And uh, that's really how I started acting. Did a bunch of little bit parts back when they had, you know, five lines and four lines and there were, you know, 50 sitcoms on the air. And then, uh, and then I did Friends. A lot of people still refer to me as the seventh friend and uh, as well by a lot of people, I mean me. And um, yeah, then I got an audition for uh, this show Pop Idol and I wasn't going on on any hosting stuff, but somebody had remembered me from a pitch. I had, uh, I had a deal for my own sitcom with Castle Rock and we pitched all the networks and somebody remembered me and brought me in late in the process. I think they'd already seen 3000 people. And uh, I said, well, you know, they're requesting me. I'll go in and just do this stupid audition. And then, yeah, I got it. <laughs> and you're like, why not? I mean, why did you say yes? Yeah, just like, why not? It's a job. It's Hollywood. Well, they requested me. And I'm like, I'm not going to piss off Fox. You know, when somebody asks you, people don't ask for you very often in this business. And when they do, you go in. Totally. And then they just kind of threw you and Seacrest together and said, go. Not really. Here's what happened. <clears throat> I did an audition. Um, and it was just improv. It was just, okay, we have five points of information, get them across, like, whatever, it's a singing competition, you're in New York City, it's the judge's birthday, five, five things go. So we were just really making it up. And they asked me to uh, stick around because the executive producers were going to come over. I was like, all right, I'll stick around. And I'm not kidding, they ran out of parking validation stickers. And I was pissed. I was real like, it's a big deal for a broke actor. And I really didn't want to do this audition anyway. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm not kidding. I walked towards the door and I turned around like, what are you doing? Eat the eight bucks and just stay for the audition. So that's one of those moments in life where I really wonder what was down that other path. So uh, the executive producers came over and uh, the audition went well. And uh, the next day, I think it was the next day I did a test and it was probably six or seven other guys. They were all a lot younger than me, but um, they kept mixing and matching us. And I, when I got in the room, I can't tell you how many people, there were maybe 15 people. And um, I got a laugh right away. And I, I don't know how else to say it. I had them. It was magic. I, no, nothing, I, I couldn't do anything wrong. Everything I said worked. And then when they put me with a guy that I had already been with, I thought, okay, this is a good sign. And they pulled us around the corner and these two guys, I would later find out they were the executive producers. They said, okay, they, they pointed to the other guy, you drive the train. And then they looked at me and they said, you eh, just back off a little bit because I, I mean, I had him in a headlock and I wasn't letting go. And that other guy has been in the news a lot later because his name is Mike Richards, the new host of Jeopardy. So we wow. auditioned and it went well. And at the end, he went, and I have no idea what the fifth thing was. I, I remember it so clearly. So he, he kind of screwed up, but he made it funny. And then we left. And I thought, well, I mean, I either got this or I don't. I was just mentally and, and fit, like just emotionally drained. And I went straight to a buddy's and started drinking Jack and Coke. And my third drink in, I got a call like a message from the casting director. They couldn't get a hold of my manager or agent. They needed to see if I could come in at 7 a.m. tomorrow. And I was like, you've got to be shitting me. I can't do this again. Like, I can only fuck this up. Like, that was lightning in a bottle. And um, I ended up having breakfast with Ryan Seacrest. And then we ended up testing together. And the next day we were working. Wow. Mike Richards should have been Seacrest. We could have been, you know, who knows what could have happened. It just changes the course. It's so like no Kardashians. It changes everything in society. 
I think you just made about 30 million enemies when you say no Kardashians. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, come on. Well, there are a lot of people out there that live and breathe and die by the Kardashians. Of course there, but I'm just saying that one little domino, like yeah. so many things. And uh, so that's why I'm rooting. I was rooting for Mike Richards to get the, the Jeopardy gig. I think he's fantastic. I think Jeopardy is going to be great now. Yeah. When So when you got the job and you started working, were you right away like, I don't know, this isn't for me? Or was it like good for a while? Well, when I saw the tape, they put together a reel from the, the, the British version Pop Idol. And my, my girlfriend at the time, who I ended up marrying, she was a musical theater major. And she started watching. And she said, this, this show is going to be huge. This is going to be enormous. And, you know, um, like, I guess England, the whole country shut down during the finale. So it was that big there. Yeah. Um, so I kind of knew it was going to be big. I mean, I, my life, my life was a right. I, I was driving a car that had no reverse because the transmission was going, which makes parallel parking a bit of a challenge. I would literally have to drive around until I found a parking spot with nobody in front of me because I could not go in reverse. Oh so my that, God. I couldn't, when we went on tour, I didn't have any credit cards. I had gotten a debt consolidation program. And so like they had to give me an advance. So I used to have to lay down $500 bills to check into every hotel we went to. So it was a big shift for me. Um, but the first, the first day in Los Angeles, we didn't really do too much. We just shot a lot of B-roll outside and a bunch of kids were there. And uh, it was kind of weird because they were, they were screaming Ryan's name because he had a big radio show here. I mean, nobody knew me, you know, they didn't know me from two guys, a girl in a pizza place. But um, the second day, we had the really the core of the auditions. I mean, I was just so excited. This is a big gig and I was really, really happy to be there. And a couple hours in, you know, you're meeting these kids, you're meeting their parents, you're getting to know them. And there was a, there was a moment where I'm not kidding for about an hour, every kid that came out of that room came out bawling. And I mean, some of them were just devastated and I couldn't, I couldn't believe what was going on. I really had no idea the show was going to be, it, it was really, if people remember the first season, it was really cruel and they didn't even air a lot of the cruelest stuff that were said to these kids. So I, I just, I, I just couldn't believe what I was part of, to be honest with you. And that's kind of how the whole gig started for me. Did you know what was going on in the room? Cause that was the first season. Like no one saw anything. Yeah. Well, they had monitors. Right. Yeah. And then they would come. I mean, some of these kids that they got, like they got shot in the gut. It was, it was really intense. And I did not understand why that was necessary. Do you remember anything like so egregious where like, I cannot believe how bad that was. I mean, cause they were kids, like you said. I, I do remember Simon at one point, this really pretty girl was like, I definitely think that you should come to Hollywood. And she got all excited. She's like, no, just to be my pet. And I'm like, what is happening right now? It was, it was really awful, dude. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty bad. Yeah. But you know what? I could hear, like, the associate producers. They had walkie-talkies. And I remember in Seattle, that was the first city we went to after Los Angeles. I, I hear this girl saying, we've got this girl. She's about to sing. She is out of her mind. We're going to crush her. And I'm like, you're talking about a 16-year-old kid who's not all there. Those were the ones they were looking for. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was wrong. Right. So, I mean, listen, we all know how producers work. Like if they were just like, FYI. Yeah. We want the only, the really great ones. And we want the mentally unstable ones. That's what we're looking for here. But like the judges weren't told that, right? Like were the judges told like, this girl's going to be horrible. Get ready or no? I don't think they told the judges anything, you know, they were just right. 
bring it on them. They were just salivating over like, this is going to be great. This is good TV. This is good TV. Yeah. Did you interact with the judges a lot? Because I mean, at that point, you know, no one was a household name except for Paula. Right. Well, I was, I mean, incredibly excited to meet Paula Abdul. Look, Spring Break 89, you know, that's her album was number one. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I get to meet. She's so pretty that it's uncomfortable to look directly at her. You know, she's one of those people. But um, I, I really liked her. And in Miami, that was, I think that was our last city, but we went out, we all got drunk and we went to a dance club and Paula and I had a dance off. I am not kidding. Like the crowd separated into a big circle. And I'm like, what has happened to my life that I'm having a dance off with Paula Abdul right now? It was amazing. Well, yeah, first of all, that is amazing. Second of all, I've met Paula before. She's literally drop dead gorgeous and nice. And I'm a gay man. So I mean, it just goes, (laughs) that's, that's where it ends, but she's gorgeous. A dance off with Paula. So how did you do against Paula? I think it was pretty much consensus. I won. Listen, that's the way I remember it. And that's, that's the way it's going to stay in my brain. And that was it just a dance off. You didn't have a moment. I mean, no, we did not, unfortunately, but as there was a story that just came out the other day, because I did an interview and they asked me, have you seen or talked to any of the judges? I said, I actually saw Paula at the Fox finale a couple of years back when they asked me to be a part of it. And I saw her at the after party and she, she was really happy to see me. She kissed me on the lips three times. Legit. I mean, we we didn't make out. I had to be clarified, but like Paula Abdul kissed me on the lips three times. Got her number. I was like, do I have a shot? And then uh, she never responded, but. It's never too late. Listen, it's never too late. <laughs> I mean, right. Cause you know, there were all those rumors, not with you, but like throughout the years, like, I mean, I've had the contestants on the show, you know, that like Paula was dating this one and that one. I mean, right. I stopped following the show. You did. You, yeah. You, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't find it interesting without me. You never watched it afterwards. No, I did. So I had something where I would, a guy hired me to write like funny stuff about the contest. So I watched a little bit of season two. I think it was called Idol Go Home. And then they uh, they got a cease and desist. They shut it down. So I don't know. It was all fine until they found out I was involved and then they, uh, they sued them. So that went away pretty quickly. But I never watched anything after that. They're like, forget it. So I read many places that you resigned. That's correct. That's a good word. It is correct. I'm not going to... Um, it's, it's resolved in the film, Dunkelman, and it's a pretty cool story, and I don't want to give away how it went down, but yes, I did. Here's what, here's what happened. Um, my uh, best friend from high school was making his college coaching, football coaching debut, D3 school in Connecticut. So me and about six of our, my best friends that I went to high school with, we went to support my buddy, and we were in my hotel room, and we were getting drunk before the game, and the TV was on just in the background. I think we were playing cards and all of a sudden, uh, they come on and they say, uh, Ryan Seacrest from American Idol is reportedly re-signed for upwards of $1 million. Still no word on co-host Brian Dunkelman. They put they have a picture of me and it's just, the room is silent. And then we all just burst out laughing because what, what the hell am I doing on television? I'm just this kid from a, one, a town of one streetlight and we just kept getting drunk. So um, what they did is they re-signed Brian, they re-signed Simon. And they just let Paul and Randy and I twist. I mean, if you remember, they let them twist for about two months. But uh, at that point, I knew I didn't want to do the show again. I was really unhappy. I knew I wanted to be an actor. And I thought if I, if I have any shot of having an acting career, I can't 
he'd be introduced as Brian Dunkelman, host of this huge show every, you know, twice a week. So um, I did, I released a statement because they weren't giving us an answer. They were saying no decision had been made yet. My manager was telling me, I don't think they're having me back. And I'm, I, I just released a statement. And all I can tell you is my agent told me the day after the statement was released that he saw the head of publicity for Fox. And he told me that she said they were all very shocked and that they figured if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's what I was told. And in the documentary, I'll reveal exactly what went down. Which I have some questions about that in a minute, which. Sure. But okay, so that came out, you made your statement. So is it that you resigned because you were, you wanted to be an actor? And like you said, you know, you get pigeonholed and you didn't want to be the host or were you miserable as well? Both, both. I was, uh, the stress was killing me. Um, And like I said, it just, I did not understand why they had to be that cruel. And, And nobody else seemed to really have a problem with it, except Paula. You know, Paula was, you know, basically in tears every day. I was in tears every other day, but uh, it, it wasn't a terrible experience by any means, but it just, like, it was really overwhelming, you know, I, I, and I talk about in the documentary, I was, I, I had just come out of a period of very heavy drug use and I had just gotten clean and I had just gotten into therapy to deal with all my bullshit that I'd been carrying around for decades. And, and then that amount of stress, uh, it, it was a very difficult time for me. Were you, was that it? Were you miserable just because of, well, you wanted to be an actor and like it was so cruel to the kids or was there other stuff yes, going it, on that made you miserable? It, also, um, look, I was, a, I'm not gonna, I wasn't Bill Hicks, but I was a pretty, I was a decent comedian. I was edgy. Look, my trademark bit was an impression of, of Hitler as a stand-up comedian. And I actually do it in the documentary because I can't find any footage of it. It's gone. Wow. That bit started my career. I'm not exaggerating. I'm my first manager because it that, that that HBO Comedy Arts Festival, they had a meeting and they basically half of them were like, he can't do that bit. And the other half of the people were like, he can't not do that bit. I did the bit and it tanked horribly. I mean, awful. I cut it after the first two shows. But that was the kind of stuff I was doing. When you're a comic, you have control over what you're saying. And my audition was... It was just me making stuff up off the top of my head. So they knew who I was. But um, I, I got the first script and I, I, I went out to my car and I started crying. It was so cheesy and so corny that I, I, I could not believe I had to say this stuff. And it rubbed them the wrong way. And I, I tried to be diplomatic about it, but uh, it was my bosses who wrote it. It was the yeah. two executive producers from England who wrote the script. How do you tell your bosses? Even Seacrest was like, this is really bad, you know, and he'll say he doesn't care what he says. He's admitted all he's ever wanted to be was a cheesy, corny guy on television, and, you know, mission accomplished. But for me, I was a comic and I was getting a lot of shit from other comedians who, you know, you can think whatever you want. You don't have to see come up to me at the improv and tell me. So I, I, my, I was, I went a little nuts. All these things of being so cruel being, you know, you're thrust into fame is a very strange thing. When you walk somewhere and never, all the eyes are on you, it's very, very weird. People think that fame is really cool. It's kind of not. I talk about the concept of fame on the show all the time. It's like one yeah. of my favorite things. It's so, people don't realize it. Like, it's just, I find it such a fascinating concept. Really, I do. It really is. Like, I'm standing at the wait at the valet waiting for my car and a 
car, you know, pulls out. You suck, Dunkelman. It's like, what? I remember the first, the, the show. Okay, so it premiered, right? The next night I was at the improv in LA. I had a set and I'm at the bar and I was getting recognized immediately after one night. And I mean, there's a couple of cougars standing at the bar grabbing my ass. I'm like, I'm being, I, I, I'm being, I got me too before it was a thing. And then I, I, I got introduced and there was a big cheer and I thought, what the hell? Nobody's ever been happy to see me. And uh, it, 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 that didn't go that well. Cause I was just, it was very, very, it's very strange. And it was, cause that was one of my questions. It was literally after one night. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Wow. And Seacrest, when you were having to say all these things, he too said like, this is crap. Let's At first, but he said he didn't care. Look, he doesn't care what he says. Um, but yeah, it, it was not good. Let me just, here's a, here's a line from it. I remember uh, this was later on. Uh, Our contestants are going to be famous now. They're going to have to learn how to deal with paparazzi. Yeah, that stuff can really repeat on you, but a pizza is just not the same without it. Paparazzi, not pepperoni. Get with it, man. Let's have another song. It was actually written in British. <laughs> I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Right. You're like, I just can't say this. But in retrospect, I should have shut the fuck up and done. Can I say Can I swear? Oh, you can say whatever you want. Yes. Right. I have a horrible I mouth. I should have shut the fuck up and said whatever they told me to. But at that point, and look, I got pulled out side and, and Nigel Lithgow, who was my boss, one of the executive producers, he says, you have to understand that he said these exact words. He said, what you're the, you're the cheesy host of a reality competition show. And you just have to accept the fact that that's who you are now. And I could not accept that. And Seacrest said, just great. great. Perfect. <laughs> my dream has come true. But that's the thing. Look, and, and okay, we were in Chicago. And I talk about this in, in the film. Uh, they had looked at some of the footage, okay? Look, I gotta make sure, I wanna make this clear. This film that I did is not about bashing American Idol and it's not about bashing Ryan Seacrest at all. It's me, it's basically me telling a story for an hour and 43 minutes straight in the camera. Documentary is not really the right word. That's all it is with a couple pictures. So it's basically one long story. But um, in Chicago, they had had some time to review the footage in LA and Seattle. And uh, the American executive producer sat me and Ryan down in the morning before we started. And he, he basically said to Ryan, he said, well, I need you to, you need you to appear a little bit more sympathetic with the kids if they start, if they come out crying. He's like, yeah, no problem. Got it. So we start and this girl, and I had been talking to her before the audition. She, she came out of the room bawling. She ran straight into my arms because I was right there. And I just gave her a hug. Seacrest came over, ripped her out of my arms, put his arm around her, put her in front of the camera. Hey, what happened? Are you okay? And I went, what in the fuck is going on? And I looked, I could see the executive producer and he just went. And I thought, this is just madness. So. Well, in that situation, was that like a setup from the producer or was it like Seacrest saying? Taking the initiative, taking the note, be more sympathetic. Let's rip that girl out of Dunkelman's arms right now and put her in front of the camera. I, that's just, uh, I don't know, man. It was, <laughs> and like I said, this is the first week. And yeah, I know you're like, you're not that. Listen, it's your story. That's why I love what I do. Cause I just, it's one, it's, you know, everyone's entitled, like everyone has their story. Was it like, was it Ryan saying, you know, this is great, sweetie, but next season I have no interest in you being here. This is my dream. 
Like, was that happening? Well, it, 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 it was pretty apparent that he would rather be doing it alone. Look, again, it's not about bashing him. It's about telling honestly what happened so that the audience can kind of go along on this journey with me and experience these things that I went through and, and just decide how would you have felt? What would you have done? And that's really all I tried to present. So, um, I mean, did you, did you watch season one? Yeah. Which is why I find it so interesting to talk to you. And I find this movie so interesting. We started to just do really weird shit. Like we would just, there was one show we walk out, he, he just started running and he just jumped. He leapt off of the state. He almost landed on the judge's table. And I was like, where the hell is he going? And he just kept doing stuff like that. Anything he could do to draw focus. It was really weird. But he, that, that started very, very early. Now, there was one point, you know, we read off a huge teleprompter, okay? And there was one live show where he decided not to read what he was supposed to read, what was on the teleprompter, which was a direct setup for either my joke or the information that I had to say four times, four times. And at one point he just, he, I just looked at him and he said, say something dumb. I said, what do you want me to say, Ryan? How about we'll be right back with more American Idol. We'll be right back with more American Idol. You're going to say one fucking thing that's on a teleprompter tonight. When that show ended, my manager and my best friend who was there picked me up. They had to hold me back from going after him. And they threw me in an elevator just to get me away from him and away from everybody like that. Look, how would you feel if somebody is intentionally trying to fuck you up and make it look like you're screwing up on live television? So why? Why did that? You, you, I think you're, I'm answering your question right there. Yeah, you are. I mean, this is not American Idol. This is Game of Thrones. (laughs) It was, dude. It was intense. Here's another little, I want to give a little, another little uh, secret story. He, uh, he comes over to me and this is before we start. This is like the first studio show. And he's like, uh, he's like, one of the, one of the kids just, uh, cause we were, we were wearing suits. One of the kids just said, we look, uh, we look like teachers. I don't give a shit what a 16 year old kid thinks. I, I look good. Cut to, he comes down wearing, look, the gayest shirt. I've one of the gayest shirts I've ever seen. He's like, they got some really cool stuff up there. And I'm like, are you shit now? I, ca- I can't wear a fucking suit now. Because you're so affected that a kid said you look like teachers. So that night we had a whole wardrobe change. No more suits. So that just giving you a little indication of what it was like to work with him. Well, yeah, that's answering my question. It sounds like he said, I'm going to stand out. Yeah. Yeah. And drop. And then all of a sudden he's going into the crowd and they all, oh, they love the spontaneity. But here's the thing. And even after the first, okay, so Chicago, I told you what happened in Chicago. They didn't think it was lively enough. There was enough action going on. And they made that known to me and Ryan. And so like we're talking to these kids and Ryan's like, hey, let's get down and do push-ups. And so he and a kid are doing push-ups. What the fuck are you doing? Hey, get on my back. I'll carry you around. And like he just eager to please. And I'm like, I'm a comedian. I'm not a clown. I don't do this shit. So that's kind of when the styles were like, whoa, we are totally different here. I'm more dry and I try to, you know, use my brain and they wanted me as the show went on to be more like him, even though like, that's not who you hired. I showed you who I was. It was all improv. It was purely me. And then they wanted me to be more cheesy and big. And I'm like, I just, I don't do, I did Hitler as a comedian. 
At one point, they brought a monkey on set in Chicago. Just, here's our next contestant. And nope, the, the producer didn't tell anybody. It's just like, what the fuck is going on? I did Hitler as a stand-up, and now there's a monkey on set? What is happening right now? Yeah. And you never thought to say, like, listen, I'm the type that if you, even if I don't want something, if you come after me from a business point of view, oh, watch out. Like that, then, then I see red. That's just my hot button. So like when you come after me, then, then I'm, I, I don't have a life. Now I'm hyper-focused and I will, I will, I will fight back times 10, just from a business point of view. Personally, yeah. I don't care what the hell you never went down that road of like, I got your game Seacrest. I'm going to stay up late tonight and tomorrow I'm going to be jumping. What I did, uh, what I did after that, I think it was after that show, we had a script meeting and I pulled the dick move and I didn't go. I didn't go to the script meeting. I said, he's not using the script. You don't want to say the lines are on the script. Let's improvise the whole fucking show. I'm ready. Why don't you do it without a teleprompter? And I did. I pulled the dick move. But it didn't matter what he thought. It mattered what my bosses thought. So I'm, I'm look, there, in a couple of stories, a little press stuff that I talk about, they say there was a toxic work environment. I'm going to admit that at times I was responsible for it being toxic. I will admit that. I'm very upfront about the mistakes that I made and, and, you know, not coming to a script meeting is that's a, that's a power move. And um, they, they didn't appreciate it. No, I'm sure they didn't appreciate that. So after not giving anything away in the movie, at the moment. So after you resign and write, you're with your friends and we have on the teleprompter, Ryan has a $1 million contract. And then, you know, we go on for many, many years before you appear on the finale. Yeah. The wait is over. That's right. A season five of the Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. I'm in such a good mood because I just got my new rain jacket, t-shirts, and sweaters in the mail from Tentry. Not only are these products fashion forward, but they're earth friendly. Tentry sells lots of different products, including clothing, underwear, outerwear, activewear, and more. What I love is that not only are these fashion forward, like I said, but everything they make is manufactured ethically and from materials that are either sustainably sourced or recycled. Besides being sustainable, Tentry clothing is so soft and so comfortable. I'm already wearing these t-shirts like all day and all night. Listen, for every item purchased from Tentry, they plant 10 trees. And this helps take carbon out of the air, replenish ecosystems, and it gives jobs to tree planters and communities around the world. Learn more about Tentry's planting mission and to grab some comfy, sustainable clothes, check out their website, www.tentry.com. And because you're listening to this podcast, use code VELVET to get 15% off your first order. That's www.tentree.com. Use code VELVET to get 15% off your first order. 
The holidays can be hectic, stressful, or downright uncomfortable. This holiday season, give the gift of comfort with Third Love, your one-stop shop for all the women in your life. Ultra soft loungewear for mom, fun sleepwear sets for your sister, premium activewear for friends, and luxe intimate sets for that special someone. Or treat yourself to Third Love. Get yourself the gift that you really want this holiday season. The best thing about Third Love is their fitting room quiz. It is such a detailed quiz in a good way that your bras, underwear, loungewear, and activewear are bound to fit perfectly. Bras are available in exclusive half cups. Underwear, loungewear, and activewear is available in XS through 3X. Feeling is believing. Upgrade to everyday pieces that love your body as much as you do. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash velvet. That's 20% off at thirdlove.com slash velvet. Staring into Zoom chats all day, talking to all of these housewives and celebrity guests for you guys, I became very self-conscious about my teeth, my smile, and my oral health. That's why I turned to Quip Electric Toothbrush. It's great because it has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean. The reason that's important is so many toothbrushes and electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. Trust me, I know. I used to use one. I also love the fact that in addition to the Quip electric toothbrush, Quip delivers fresh floss, toothpaste, mouthwash, gum refills, and all of that every three months from $5. Shipping is free so you can save money and skip the hustle bustle of in-store shopping. If you go to getquip.com slash velvet right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's first refill free at getquip.com slash velvet. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash velvet. Quip. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows that I've gained the COVID-19 over the past two years, and I've literally tried everything to take the weight off, and nothing has worked. Everything has been a fad or a gimmick until now. Calibrate is not a diet or a quick fix product. That's why it's worked for me. It's a year-long commitment that gives you the tools to fight your biology. It's different because it's a comprehensive doctor-guided metabolic reset that promotes sustainable results through lifestyle changes. Your medical team includes doctors who assess your health in an initial 45-minute video visit, provide ongoing medical support, and prescribe GLB-1s as part of your one-year metabolic reset. Calibrate's earliest members lost an average of 14% of their body weight, which is so unbelievable to me. Your weight doesn't reflect your willpower. Get back in control with Calibrate. Get $50 off the one-year metabolic reset when you use promo code VELVET at jointcalibrate.com. That's $50 off when you use code VELVET at jointcalibrate.com. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash velvet robe. You may not be feeling down and out and depressed or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress level is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strained in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. Talk to someone who's completely unbiased and who's not going to judge you or take sides. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, 
phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain for it. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and behind the Velvet Rope listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash velvet rope. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash velvet rope. Betterhelp.com slash velvet rope. I mean, because I know, you know, you're right, like your manager and you have grumblings of maybe they would have let you go anyway, but really you resign. Like that was a dark period, right? Like you went through the typical, like I yeah. ruined my life. Oh, of course. Um, see, what happened is I, I, I fired my manager. I fired my agent. I had a publicist and she got me a meeting. She actually was Paul Abdul's manager at the time. And this guy had been trying to poach me all the whole season inviting me over to watch football on Sunday. And, and so I finally had a meeting with him. I told him I want to be an actor. And he listed off some agencies that we could go, go to. We had a great meeting. And then uh, he said, well, the first thing, you need to fire your manager. I had not fired him yet. Otherwise, this isn't ethical for us really to even be talking. I'm like, I understand that. I fired my manager. It did not go well at all. And then I called the publicist. I said, listen, so I, you know, I, I, I let go of my manager. And she's like, oh, God. I just talked to the other manager and he just doesn't think that it's a fit right now. He doesn't think. And I said, Holy shit. I just fired my man. She's like, there's plenty of other managers set me up um, with a, a meeting with this woman from another pretty reputable management company. And uh, she set up a showcase at the improv and all everybody came down from the whole company. And look, when I, when I do well on stage, I say it went okay. If I kill I say it went pretty well. I'm not exaggerating. I annihilated. It's the best I've ever done in my life. I'm not kidding. I think it was a 15 minute set. I mean, walking off stage, the whole crowd's high fiving me on the way out. Two days later, she calls me. She's like, yeah, we just couldn't, we couldn't get everybody on board. And that's, that's when I thought I'm, I'm fucked. It doesn't matter what I do. Another manager who turned me down said, look, and this is a guy who had, who had he'd been trying to poach me since Two guys and a girl. He was repping Nathan Fillion. And then all of a sudden, you know, he had been following my stand-up career. Oh, he's got the Aspen Comedy Festival. Now he's on this show. And, like, he was calling me all the time. And so I, I called him. He's like, yeah, dude. He's like, I got – nobody believes you. He's like, nobody believes that you quit. And nobody really understands what happened. But you may get to test for something. It'll be a decision between you and another guy. And it's like, I just think people are going to err on the side of safe. And he's like, my advice to you is uh, I, I would leave town. He told me to leave town. He's like, for a while. And uh, he said, you, you've got the stink on me. Those were the words. And I had the stink on me. Well, what year is it? That stink is not left. I thought, let this blow over. Let this go away. And it never blew over, dude. And what, over. and what was the stink? Just that you resign i mean listen i like know how hollywood works but like what was it like what did you do wrong everybody wrote that i got fired everybody i mean would would somebody you know in your position or a journalist who look there's a lot of people in this industry that that say a lot of shitty things and write shitty things but when you really understand that deep down they wish that they could be in front of the camera 
that's a lot of people. There's no way anybody could even begin to fathom why somebody would, would leave a show that successful. Um, and everybody wrote, I got fired. And then it just became part of the collective consciousness. And, and yeah, I, I think that the rumor got out there that I was difficult. I can't, I can't argue with that. I was, I can admit that, but you can talk to anybody from any show I've ever done. I don't think they're going to have a negative thing to say about me, except the three reality shows that I've done. Was they difficult? Yeah. They, say, they were all really shitty. Shitty stuff happens on reality television. You're preaching to the choir, yes. That shit didn't happen on Friends. It doesn't happen on Dharma and Greg. It doesn't happen on Third Rock from the Sun. It's just like, that's the difference. And in, 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 um, really, I just really don't care for reality television if, you're not, if that's not coming across. But with a sitcom or, or a show, an acting show, you, it's every, such a collaborative effort between the writers and the actors and the producers and the, and the crew. Just how do we make this as good as possible? How do we make this as funny as we can? With a reality show, you're trying to get, you're trying to elicit a genuine reaction from these real people. So how can we, how can we make them cry? How can we make them angry? How can we piss them off? It's just all, it's just so much deception and lies. And they'll, 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 they'll ask you a question on camera and then they'll, they'll show your response to a different question. It's just, it's flat out lying is what it is. So that's been my experience. I say in my next life, I want to come back and have a consulting business for people like before, during, and after your reality career, because I talk to so many people like right after they get, because I mean, a lot of the people get fired these days and it's just like, you know, you were so hopeful. And I'm like, of course we're here five years to however amount of time it is. Like you were the one used like this whole thing, like you were used like, but they, and that's where it goes back to like fame is such, it's not even money. It's the fame people will. And then it's like the jokes on you because I mean, you're still, people know who you are, but all of that for what? And now same thing. You can't go work at Bloomingdale's. You can't go work in an office. What are you going to do now? I mean, you have a skill. It's different. Like a lot of these people have no skill. And then why? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had a buddy and we came up with an idea. We were going to kind of like try and get people to give us money to teach a course on how to get on reality television. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be part of the problem. I'm not doing that. I'd rather just disappear. Um, But yeah, it's and they're lining up, man. And let me tell you something right now. I don't want to. I don't want to upset any fans of any particular show, so I won't say any particular show names. But this behavior that people are watching and have been ingesting for what now about 50, 20 years. It's been twenty years of reality television and watching these people behave in this way. Look what's going on on airplanes right now. Look, look. People just think that they can get away with being as shitty as they possibly can. I, I tweeted the other day, it's the, the, the seeds of reality television are, are, are after all these years are now being harvested. It's corrupted an entire generation. I think the entire generation of women, 100%. What shows in particular are you thinking? I'm not going to say no what I already got shy about the Kardashians comment. I love well, everybody. Well, do you think, because I mean, ratings are down for a lot of reality shows now. They are. Good. Like, do you think there will be an end to this genre at some point? Or is this just an endless? That's what I thought back then. And I actually had people say, look, this re- it was such a stigma for me to be on a reality. 
I guess it really technically was a competition show, but it was a reality show. And uh, man, I, there was a big stigma about it, especially right then, because that's when it really started. I'm so sorry. I was I, 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 I was I was part of starting this crap. I really am. I really feel bad because I I'm an actor. I was an actor before. Reality television hurts actors, hurts writers, and those that's that's the group I wanted to be in. Are you shocked? Like you look at like I'm just picturing this as an example, like The Real Housewives, like Lisa Rinna. I mean, Days of Our Lives. Like we have Melrose. Like we have real Garcelle Bouvet. Like we have real actors and actresses now. I mean, and then if you could factor in like the Osbournes and all these actual family shows, I mean, are you shocked at the amount of like actors that are now on? Yeah, because shows? there's no, there, there aren't as many acting gigs. It's just the way it is. There, there, there isn't. I did a, I did a, a pilot for ABC. It was just an ensemble cast, but I had opportunities after Idol and it didn't get picked up because it, there, there was an hour block of some shitty reality show instead of two sitcoms. They took a nosedive. A nosedive after. And that's how I was made. That's how I made my living before Idol. You get four lines on two guys, a girl on a pizza place and you get paid a couple grand and then it re-airs. Remember when shows used to re-air? Yeah. You get paid the exact same amount. You just get a check. And then 80% and then 70%. That just doesn't really happen that much anymore. <clears throat> what do you think of Lisa Rana on Beverly Hills Housewives? I don't watch that shit. <laughs> I didn't think you did. I just thought maybe, you know. But of an out, I, look, a gig is a gig, man. I did Celebrity Fit Club. Not proud of it. But, um, you know, I needed the 80 grand. What are you going to do? Nobody else was hiring me. That was well, four years after. Four years after the fact. And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm out of money. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I think that this train would have kept going even if you weren't part of Idol. So when you make the comment like you're sorry you started this, like if, it make, if you could sleep better today, I think grandizing. No, I mean I'm like okay with that. I'm not shading you. I just think this would be where it is today. Well, yeah. I mean, yes. Well, then we learn, and I don't know if this is now part of the movie or part of everything i mean it's part of everything so i don't know how much you want to go into this but then we learn that perhaps many years later it was confirmed to you that you wouldn't that you you quit but you were gonna 100 percent be fired regardless okay yeah and i did find out and i found out the night of the fox finale all this time i thought that i i was referring to myself as the pete best of american idol i was like this is I've made the biggest mistake in the history of show business. And uh, from what I was told that night, they, they were going to, they were going to can me, but they, I, I announced that I was leaving before. And they, I was told it was a simple issue of, do we keep one or two? And uh, quite honestly, that's the, my life changed in that moment. All that weight just came off. It didn't matter. I did exactly. I mean, it didn't matter what I did, you know, but I was like, why did you, what are you wait for why, why, why are you waiting? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. <clears throat> so before you got there, right, all those years you did, that was when you had some dark times. I mean, well, you talked look, about after this. I got, after I realized I don't have any representation now, I, I ended up with a smaller agency. God bless everybody who's ever chosen to work with me, but I could never get to this day. I have not been able to get with a, with a big agency like they all and I had friends, I've had friends try to help me. And he, they're like, I can't believe it. They're like, 
yeah, the show is still a hit. And he, he goes the way that show goes. I'm like, after all these years, man, it's just never changed. Um, yeah, when the, when the show premiered, look, I thought, well, people aren't going to stop watching Frasier. That was a, the summer show. Man. They stopped watching Frasier, didn't they? When it premiered to 33 million, I couldn't get out of bed. I was devastated. I was crippled, crippled with depression and uh, just drinking enough to kill a Shetland pony. And that's where, you know, I, I slipped back into the drug use and just spiral. And I was getting opportunities, but I was out of my mind. I was out of my mind. I was so, I was so depressed. I, I, uh, I, I was like, I got to go to a shrink. I'm not going to talk. I, nothing, no talking is going to fix this. I just want, I want drugs. Give me something to take this away. And I went on Paxil, a drug called Paxil, an antidepressant, and um, 10 milligrams of just nothing. And then 20, it was like, okay, I don't, I don't feel like I want to die anymore, but I don't feel anything. Like you could have walked up and kicked me in the nuts and I would have said, oh man, I'm so sorry. I got my nuts in the way of your foot. I just didn't care. And then they upped it. I think they finally upped it to 40. And then I could feel it every day around 4 p.m. I could feel it so high. It, I was so high. And I was just uh, gambling and drinking and doing drugs. And, and uh, there was a night we went to private room karaoke for a birthday party. It's like 20 people. And they're trying to close it down. And of course, I'm singing the last song. I'm singing The End by The Doors. It's not a short song. And at one point, one of the Korean dudes that worked there was trying to wrestle the mic away from me to get us out of there. And we just, we went to the ground, man. <laughs> went to the floor. And then uh, my girl, see, the thing with Paxil is it makes, it either increases the effect of alcohol or it decreases it completely. And you just don't know what's going to happen. Well, we were, you know, down in Koreatown, stopped at a red light. I just got out. I got out of the car and started running. She couldn't find me for like an hour. So this is what happened to me. So like, you're not really going to set yourself up for success. You have an audition the next day. I mean, there's pictures where my eyes are just googly, dude. I look like I was insane. <clears throat> and then I finally ended up getting off this drug and, uh, you know, I weaned, I cut it in half and then I cut that in half and then I cut that in half. The last day when I, when I finally was not in my system, I couldn't, I couldn't stand up. I could not stand up. I, every time I just, it felt like a tilt to whirl and I fall down and it took a few days to get over that. And like, it's convulsing. Some people have permanent, they call them brain zaps, where they just feel a little electrical charge. So, um, I've, and I've never gone on anything since then. It just, it scared me too much. That is scary. And I know, I mean, you've said this before, like you got as dark as like you've tried to take your own life. I didn't try to, as I say, I wasn't suicide. I was, I was suicide adjacent, but quite honestly, I've got too big an ego to ever really go through with it because look, let's talk about the, the ultimate admission of, of failure. Yeah. Like, it's really final. It, it kept, yeah, it is final, but it's, it, it was comforting to know I had the option. I think I heard Mark Maron say that. I'm like, I've said that. I've said that before. It was comforting knowing that I could just end it any day. Still is, isn't it? Well, if you feel completely powerless in life, that is one thing, yes, that you, we all have control over. No, it's, it's, it was hopelessness. I was, it was hopelessness, and I, um, my spirit was broken for a long time. That's the way I describe it. And was it more like now I can't get an actual job that I want 
because right. I quit or was it like, holy shit, I could be famous and have, and I'm not, there's no shame, like millions and millions and millions of dollars. The money is a, is a tough thing. The fame, who cares? But look, you know, I got to do a couple really cool things like, you know, a celebrity golf tournament in Jamaica. I mean, I'm in a hot tub with Chris Kirkpatrick and I'm playing golf with uh, Scott Wolf and they, oh my God, they kiss your ass, dude. That part of fame is pretty cool. Pat O'Brien, remember Pat O'Brien? He got in trouble from voicemail messages. First of all, why are you releasing those voicemail messages? What was so offensive about that? Hey, I think you're really hot. Let's get some coke. That's, let's, come on. I'm one of those people like you can't offend in the real, like I just, I have nothing offense. The first thing Pat O'Brien said to me, I walk up, he's like, Brian, thank you so much for being here. I think that you're great. That fucking piece of shit, Ryan Seacrest calling and trying to take my goddamn job. Every guy, fuck that guy. I'm like, we're going to get along just fine. Because at that point he was, he was trying to take every single job in Hollywood. Everyone that there was. Thanks for tuning in to our part one sit down with Brian Dunkelman and stay tuned for part two coming soon. You know, I have more Ryan Seacrest questions. I'm not trying to create drama. I just legitimately have questions and I really need to know what Brian means by Ryan is trying to take over every single job in Hollywood, one phone call at a time. Of course, we talk about his stellar new movie, Dunkelman. We talk about, is he in on the joke? I mean, when did that change? You know, all those years of thinking that you quote unquote ruined your life. Are you in on the joke now when people say, you know, Brian Dunkelman, that guy who hosted the first year of Idol? We are just getting started. Stay tuned for part two coming soon. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones and the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, we're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're behind the Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind the Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.